Welcome to the flagship episode of How the Art World Works. I'm your host, Megan Flanders, and today we're going to talk about one of the first successful American female artists, Gertrude Casebeer. Dismissed for failing to embrace the traditional roles of motherhood, Gertrude was able to successfully navigate the choppy waters between a sustainable art career and responsible matriarch, deftly, and continued to chart a course for other women to achieve success as well. Her striking images of motherhood are just as relevant today as they were then, echoing the same fears and questions all moms have at some point. Join us while we talk about one of the finest examples of lady badassery, Gertrude Casebeer. May 18, 1852, brought the Fort Des Moines home of John W. Stanton and his wife Muncie, their first child, a healthy baby girl named Gertrude Stanton. Seven years and a baby brother later, the family packed it in to move to the Colorado Territory and join John. Gertrude's father was prospering from a sawmill he had built there to aid in the boom of the gold rush, and his success gave him a good local reputation with steady income. That same year, he was elected the very first mayor of Golden, a small mining village that was the capital of the Colorado Territory. The Stantons' newfound wealth and social status prompted Gertrude's mother and father to encourage their daughter to become a musician. However, Gertrude was resistant. Her mother later remarked that the child was simply crazy about pictures, while no persuasion or threat could make her take up the study of the piano. Gertie, as she was lovingly called by her family, spent her days meandering and exploring her mining town alongside her father, often accompanying him as he made negotiations and trade with the local Native Americans. These memories would remain precious and remarkably important in her later years. The Civil War forced the Stanton family out of the Colorado Territory. They relocated in Brooklyn, New York, in 1864. Mr. Stanton continued to prosper with work processing minerals, and Mrs. Stanton took boarders into their home for additional income. From 1868 until 1870, Gertrude attended the Moravian Seminary for Women, the first, and considered best, school for women, while living with her maternal grandmother in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Throughout Gertrude's childhood and young adult years, she was considered an independent and spirited character. There are conflicting accounts as to the exact year, but sometime before she graduated, Gertie's father passed away suddenly. It is unknown whether she was allowed to return home for the funeral. After graduation, she was expected to come home and help her mother continue the family business until finding a suitor of her own. Suddenly, the world was very real and hard. From the ages of 18 to 21, Gertie dutifully helped the family, taking in boarders, though always continuing her own artistic work on the side. And on her 22nd birthday, Gertrude married a man who had been a guest at their home, Edward Casebeer. 
By all accounts, Edward seemed a good fit on paper. Six years her senior, he was a stable man financially and socially. He was okay looking, and from a wealthy German family. He had decided to make his own fortune in the United States and settled in New York City. With his background in chemistry and business, Edward became a successful shellac importer, and Gertrude's mother hoped he would be able to provide a life of means for her daughter, that possibly he would be the one to tame her wild spirit and embrace the societal norms for the era. It worked. Sort of. Less than a year from their wedding date, Gertrude birthed a healthy, happy baby boy named Frederick. Three years later, in 1878, a sister named Gertrude Elizabeth had joined the brood, and two more after that brought their final child, Ermine. Gertrude expected that the upstanding and respectable man she had married would be a willing and participative father to their children. She was wrong. She lacked the patience for housework and consistently maintained that she wanted to be an artist. Eventually, the inability of Gertrude and Edouard to compromise their ambitions caused a considerable distance between them. Later, Gertrude recalled her decision to marry Edouard as a mistake, as she was on the rebound and he made a nice proposal. Casebeer wrote that she was miserable throughout most of her marriage. She said, If my husband has gone to heaven, I want to go to hell. He was terrible. Nothing was ever good enough for him. At that time, divorce was considered scandalous, and the two remained married while living separate lives after 1880. If you're running a pencil on the math... She had a newborn when she told him to suck rocks. This was an incredibly ballsy move on several fronts. Remember, this was 1880. We were still 40 years before women would be allowed to vote, let alone make it on their own with three kids under the age of five. There was absolutely no way she was returning to her mother's house, and forever marred as a failure of domesticity. So she did what anyone would do. She told her estranged husband that he was paying for her lifestyle now, and she and the kids were moving. A man of his word, Edouard agreed, and financially supported the children through school age and beyond. When all of the children had reached high school, Gertrude was 37 years old, tired of domestic life, and decided to travel to Europe to attend art school. Edouard paid for that, too. Over the objections of her husband, in 1889, she moved the family back to Brooklyn in order to attend the newly established Pratt Institute of Art and Design full-time. While at Pratt, Casebeer learned about the theories of Friedrich Froebel, a 19th-century scholar whose ideas about learning, play, and education led to the development of the first kindergarten. His concepts about the importance of motherhood in child development greatly influenced Casebeer, and many of her later photographs would emphasize the bond between mother and child. Although Pratt didn't offer photography at the time, 
Gertrude spent as much time as possible reading on the subject via the school's library. By the time she graduated, she was hooked. Like many art students of the time, Casebeer decided to travel to Europe in order to further her education. She began 1894 by spending several weeks studying the chemistry of photography in Germany, where she was also able to leave her daughters with in-laws. She spent the rest of the year in France studying with American painter Frank Dumont. In 1895, she returned to Brooklyn. Her husband had sent word that he was tremendously ill and dying, and the family was running out of money due to it. Embarrassed that others might find out, and scared she might not be able to make it financially? More so than ever, Gertrude was determined to become a professional photographer. She was told her husband had a year to live, but he managed to squeak out 12. Gertrude wasn't waiting around for that dude anymore. She had shit to do. She graduated from Pratt in 1896 and became an assistant to Brooklyn portrait photographer Samuel H. Lifshe, where she learned how to run a studio and expand her knowledge of printing techniques. She had two spectacular shows to help promote her work as an artist and bring traffic to the studio, both group shows. And the success of these shows led to another at the Photographic Society of Philadelphia in 1897. She also lectured on her work there and encouraged other women to take up photography as a career, saying, I earnestly advise women of artistic tastes to train for the unworked field of modern photography. It seems to be especially adapted to them, and the few who have entered it are meeting a gratifying and profitable success. In 1898, on Fifth Avenue in New York City, Gertrude was able to finally open a photography studio of her own. It was incredibly successful. She took portraits of all of the it people of the time, but grew tiresome at the lack of challenge. One morning, she watched Buffalo Bill's Wild West Troop parade past her studio toward Madison Square Garden. Her memories of affection and respect for the Lakota people inspired her to send a letter to William Buffalo Bill Cody, requesting permission to photograph Sue traveling with the show in her studio. Cody and Casebeer were similar in their abiding respect for Native American culture and maintained friendships with the Sioux. Cody quickly approved Casebeer's request and she began her project on Sunday morning, April 14, 1898. Casebeer's project was purely artistic, and her images were not made for commercial purposes and never used in Buffalo Bill's Wild West program booklets or promotional posters. Casebeer took photographs of the Sioux while they were relaxed. While they weren't made up in full ceremonial attire or on horseback as part of the Wild West show, she took simple portraits of Chief Irontail and Chief Flying Hawk, which became her most challenging and stunning images. For those so inclined, 
Casebeer's photographs of this series are preserved at the National Museum of American History's Photographic History Collection at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., and they can be seen today for free. In July 1899, a then 32-year-old Alfred Stieglitz published five of Casebeer's photographs in the magazine Camera Notes, declaring her, quote, Beyond dispute, the leading artistic portrait photographer of the day. Her rapid rise to fame was noted by a photographer and critic, Joseph Kiley, who wrote, quote, A year ago, Casebeer's name was practically unknown in the photographic world. Today, that name stands first and unrivaled. That same year, while summering in Newport, Rhode Island, Gertrude staged and shot an image in a stable with her friend, illustrator Francis Dillahanty. While the photograph's title references the biblical story of the birth of Christ, Casebeer was more interested in creating a formal study of shade and tone than in telling a story. She obscured her subject's face and shadow and merely suggested there was an infant on her lap. In fact, there was no baby, just an auspicious pile of linens in Francis Delahanty's lap. Gertrude's print of The Manger sold for $100, the most ever paid for a photograph at that time. Gertrude's relationship with Alfred during this time can best be described as complicated. Both were incredibly passionate about photography and its emerging respect as an art form. Both worked closely to form a new club of like-minded photographers called the Photo Secessionists. And both were in mostly unhappy marriages. Gertrude was a rising star, and Alfred knew it. She was 13 years older than him. Her kids were grown by this time and several biographers note that she had something like a crush on him. She wrote to a friend in December of 1899, declaring, I think he's one of the fairest, broadest, finest men I ever knew. She once told her daughter that she had been, quote, perfectly devoted to him, and that she had once written on the back of her personal print of a portrait she had made of him, to the only man I ever loved. But he probably had no inkling. For one thing, he was only interested sexually in women younger than himself, and she was 13 years his senior. By July of the next year, Gertrude would be a grandmother and Alfred would be welcoming his baby daughter to the world with his wife, while cheating on her with someone else. This didn't mean he dropped Gertrude. He knew that a few key artists in his roster were making him the most money and exposure, and he wasn't about to give that up. In 1905, six more of her images were published in camera work, and the following year, Stieglitz gave her an exhibition, along with Clarence H. White, at his Little Galleries of the Photo Secession, located in Midtown Manhattan at 291 
Fifth Avenue in New York City. When asked about the photo secessionists, Stieglitz's role in forming and tightly controlling the photo secession was made clear by two exchanges that took place at the opening of the National Arts Club show. In the first, Stieglitz implied that membership in the group was relatively open. Gertrude had asked him, What's this photo secession? Am I a photo secessionist? Do you feel that you are? Well, that's all there is to it. However, when Charles Berg asked Stieglitz if he too was a photo secessionist, Um, (laughs) no. Stieglitz informed him that he was not. Stieglitz gave this response even though he was the one responsible for including three of Berg's photos in the show. Alfred's arbitrary who's who list changed constantly, but always contained a few of his favorites that he knew he could sell in any show, including Gertrude, and it bothered her. The strain of balancing her professional life with her personal one began to take a toll on Gertrude. The stress was exacerbated by her husband's decision to move to Oceanside, Long Island, which had the effect of distancing her from New York's artistic center. She wasn't excited about any of that commute, so she returned to Europe, where, through connections, she was able to photograph the reclusive Auguste Rodin. Today's podcast is sponsored by Getting Your Shit Together. Gist Inc. is a book some software, and consultation services for artists who are trying to become a better business. Check them out today at G-Y-S-T-I-N-K.com. You'll find free resources and lots of cool stuff to help get your art career back on track. Okay. It's 1910. Taft is president. And after 36 years of marriage, Gertrude's husband finally kicked the bucket. She was free. She could pursue anything she wanted. She was 58 years old, at the height of her fame, with nothing to chain her to domesticity any longer. She helped to establish the Women's Professional Photographers Association of America. In turn, Stieglitz began to publicly speak against her work although he still thought enough of her earlier images to include 22 of them in the landmark exhibition of pictorialists at the Albright Knox Gallery later that year. Stieglitz's main beef with Casebeer was that she was leaning too commercial and not idealistic enough, but he often sold original prints by her and others at far less than their market value if he felt a buyer, quote, truly appreciated the art. And when he did sell prints, he took many months to finally pay the photographer in question. It sort of sounds like some gallerists we know today. Gertrude was shocked by a highly critical attack by her former admirer, Joseph Kiley, published in Stieglitz's camera work. You know, The same guy that said her name, quote, stands first and unrivaled, like 10 years ago? It's unknown why Kylie suddenly changed his opinion of her, but Gertrude suspected that Alfred had put him up to it. 
After several years of protesting Alfred's shitty practices, in 1912, Gertrude became the first member to resign from the photo secession. Fuck you, Alfred. In 1916, Casebeer helped Clarence H. White found the group Pictorial Photographers of America, which was seen by Stieglitz as a direct challenge to his artistic leadership. By this time, Stieglitz's tactics had offended many of his former friends, including White, and a year later, he was forced to disband the photo secession. Gertrude continued. She encouraged women to become photographers and helped shape the early careers of artists such as Laura Gilpin, providing mentorship and guidance throughout her life to those who asked. She continued her passionate photography throughout the 1910s and 20s, photographing some of the most important people of the time. In 1924, her daughter Ermine Turner joined her in the portrait studio business. Five years later, in 1929, Gertrude was ready to pack it in. She liquidated her studio, moved in with her daughter and grandchildren, and focused on the one-woman show she'd been granted by the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, today known as the Brooklyn Museum. It was a very big deal. Five years after her solo show in Brooklyn, Gertrude Casebeer would die quietly at home. Her official death certificate lists chronic myocarditis as the cause of death. She was 82. In June of 2002, the USPS honored Gertrude with her very own American postage stamp. It featured her piece, Blessed Art Thou Among Women, and was featured under the title Masters of American Photography. She was honored alongside Dorothea Lange and Imogen Cunningham. The stamp was good for 37 cents. (laughs) 